All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to, so we're going to use several passages of Scripture again this morning as I just finish up on the message, two messages that I've been preaching on awakening, revival, and spiritual renewal. And so we're going to be looking at, at least first uh, this morning, most likely Luke chapter 3, so you can turn there and get ready for that. Luke chapter 3, and then I'll be looking at passages in um, Acts. So get ready to turn there also. Let's have a word of prayer, though. Lord, this morning we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are still speaking loudly from the word of God. I pray your people are listening, and I pray, Lord, those who have never heard, you would open up their ears to hear, and Lord, you would grant them faith and repentance uh, to believe in the only one who can save them, and I pray, Lord, that you would give them eternal life. And so, Lord, help us that those who know you as our Lord and Savior to always be hedging against getting dull and getting faint of heart, and uh, just going through the motions, Lord, please uh, rescue us from any kind of hypocrisy. And Lord, allow us to be, uh, have a burning desire for you, uh, even greater than when we first came to know you as our Lord and Savior. And I pray that that flame would never go out uh, until the day you take us or you come again whatever comes first. And so, Lord, bless our time together. Help us to see some of the ingredients of forerunners and what they preached. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, from last week to this week, I was looking at uh, the Great Awakening that actually, as I mentioned already, started right here uh, in New Jersey. Uh, It was a It was a dramatic revival, and it began in the mid-18th century, around 1735, and it swept through the colonies in the Raritan Valley. Uh, And from that time, uh, of course, it swept north, too, uh, to where Jonathan Edwards was preaching, and down south to where George Whitfield was preaching. And so the whole coast was being awakened by the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of the Word of God. And from that revival came a multitude of conversions, real, genuine conversions, and the church was revived. So amazingly, signs of revival, I'm still amazed that it started here. I I don't want you to forget it started in New Jersey. The Dutch Reformed congregations Uh, in early 1726, and the Great Awakening was actually a series of revivals uh, in the American colonies between 1725 and 1760. Now, I mentioned last week, just by way of review, that Jonathan Edwards was there from the beginning to the end, great uh, theologian and preacher, considered to be one of the most uh, astute theological minds of our time, And he observed it, and then he wrote about it after it settled down. And he said, uh, he concluded that uh, awakening uh, was not conversion uh, to Christ, but what it was, it was when the word of God was preached, and there was an immediate impression upon the souls of people, 
and concerning God, concerning Christ, concerning heaven and hell. And so the awakening, that, that awakened person was awakened to their responsibility before God, who is the creator, and, uh, and of course, their eternal destiny. So it fell short of conversion, as he observed and wrote about, and he believed that uh, an awakened sinner, if it, that sinner did not come all the way over and trust in Christ and become a repentant disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, they may falsely think they were converted. So it's recorded actually by Jonathan Edwards that he was really cut to the quick when he remembered the variety of false experiences and hypocrisies and degenerations that accompanied the awakening. Because remember, when God is working, who else is working? Satan's working, all right? There's counterfeits all the time. So we have to determine what's real and what is not real, and that's what he was doing. So in Edwards' understanding, a revival was the, the event itself that contained a miraculous element to it. When he began to evaluate the nature of revival, he observed that there are times when the Holy Spirit is given in an exceptional measure with great speed and swiftness where sudden conversions to Christ happen and they become real conversions, all right? And so it was not that something new was happening, but that God was heightening normal Christianity to a place that spiritual influence was widespread. The convictions that people were receiving after hearing the word of God were much deeper, and their feelings and affections for Christ were inflamed and became intense, and which made, of course, that person alive uh, in a saving relationship with God. So ultimately, that led to a spiritual renewal, and of course, that was when uh, the awakening led to a genuine revival where people were immediately converted to Christ and experienced dramatically change lives that ultimately renewed the churches in a very spiritual way and the churches became alive again uh, and the people of God had a heightened sense of the awe and wonder of God and their affections. That's an important word for Jonathan Edwards. He writes a whole book called Religious Affections and it's about that if you really want to know if somebody's really a Christian right? How are they in their affections towards God? Do they love God? Do they love God inside themselves? And does that love come out of their life in everything they do, say, and think? So they were inflamed, uh, and their relationships with the Lord became deeper, and their desire, along with that, to carry out his work faithfully while they lived the rest of their life on the earth became very prominent. And so that means the word of God is not going to be kept silent. It's going to spread all over the place. So even though uh, the Dutch Reformed Church had retained the doctrines of the Reformation, the doctrines of grace, uh, to a great measure they lost the power and, the sp and spirituality that accompanied uh, any great religious movement. And so 
when God lays the foreground for what's going to come, he raises up forerunners. Uh, and one of those forerunners that I mentioned was a man named Theodore Frelinghuysen, and uh, who gener- really he was a Dutch Reformed pastor from Holland, came to the colonies because he wanted to be used by God. And when he got here, he realized they had the truth, but there were many false conversions and people were just going to church. So he wanted to bring his hearers back to the religion of the heart. All right, and that's what he wanted to do. So both, I mentioned that both John the Baptist and the- Theodore uh, Frelinghuysen preached to awakened sinners and formal professors from their lethargic spiritual stupor and often unconverted state. And of course, bro- both drew uh, a line in the sand with the same message preached by the prophets of old. And I mentioned last week, Uh, Malachi. And of course, uh, when we're looking at comparing the ministries of John the Baptist and, of course, uh, who was the forerunner of the Messiah and Frelinghuysen, who was the forerunner of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards uh, really came up with uh, four, there were certain common denominators that identified Forerunners. In other words, in order for Frelinghuysen to bring people back uh, to the religion of the heart, three things took place in their preaching. The first one I mentioned last week and is that a forerunner uh, proclaims their message to people steeped in the religious currents of the day. All right, that means they preach to a society spiritually deadened and shallow to a people who were indifferent and lackadaisical about spiritual matters and, of course, a people uh, affected by all kinds of subtle forms of hypocrisy. So in their first uh, point and their preaching, there's two spiritual conditions that they were preaching against, and that was religious formality and which leads into comfortable hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. In other words, people saying, well, I know what I believe and I'll just go along with the flow. But no, no real conversions often in those cases, especially no preaching of the gospel. It's just like we go to church. That's what we do. It's like cultural Christianity. You go to different pockets in the United States and everybody goes to church. But you know, if you, if you ever went uh, to a church that is caught in cultural cr- Christianity, you'll know that a lot of people that go to the church are not believers. And, uh, and yet they go. You know, and they do their thing. And, but that's a dangerous, dangerous thing because their heart is kind of absent from worshiping God. And I mentioned from Malachi that when a person slips into hypocrisy, there, could, there are certain signs. They, beginning, they begin to ignore the name of God. They begin to uh, start breaking faith with one another. They begin to complain that they are not as blessed even as their wicked, uh, a wicked person is. They stop being generous and faithful uh, in their giving, not only of their money, but of their time and resources. And then also they end up saying, it's not worth serving God. What's the point? See, that's all where hypocrisy leads. So they were preaching against that. And of course, we, all, we always have to preach against that, right? But a second thing, which I'm going to mention this morning that forerunners proclaimed 
is the gospel of repentance. The gospel of repentance. Now, if you notice in uh, the Bible here in Luke, chapter 3, John the Baptist, remember I mentioned already was a forerunner. It even mentions that in the scripture. But in chapter 3, verse number 3, you'll see that when John the Baptist preached, something else went with that. And it says in verse 3, And he came into all the districts around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was what he was preaching. And it says in verse 4, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight, and the rough road smooth. And then here's the conclusion of why he was preaching repentance for forgiveness of sins is in verse number six, that all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he really had his mission statement there given in the book of Isaiah, and that's what he did. He came here as a forerunner, laid the groundwork, and began to preach repentance. So repentance, basically, I'm going to describe it more as I go along, because I think it's important for us to grasp what repentance is. We've been dealing with this in the men's group a little bit, but I'm going to expand it a little bit here this morning, is that repentance is really a change of mind which issues in a definite turning away from sin that is a heart and soul of repentance towards God. So John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance in the Gospel of Mark where he said, where it says there, now after John had been taken into custody, okay, John's in prison now, who's going to preach repentance next? Well, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus picks up where John the Baptist stopped and he begins to preach the exact same thing and uh, to the same kind of people that were steeped in uh, religious formality and comfortable hypocrisy and he preaches repentance so repentance is a vital part of preaching the gospel of jesus christ and repentance is a conscious recognition that you are a sinner and that you are turning to a savior who can forgive your sin make you right with god and reconcile you to himself the scripture always joins repentance and the forgiveness or the remission of sins together they go together they're a package and so that means that if you want to be forgiven by god what must precede that is repentance for forgiveness all right if you don't repent and turn to the lord jesus christ there can be no forgiveness there can be no applying the sacrifice of the cross to your account so the apostles, of course, again, picked up when Jesus left with the same exact message. Preach, they preached repentance. In fact, if you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 20, in verse number 21, 
This is a key passage of Scripture that is in the book of Acts, but all over the messages of Acts are the same uh, in the sense of when they preached, they preached repentance. It says in Acts 20, look at verse number 21. It says, soundly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that was what they were preaching also. Now, before I go any further, I want to mention uh, some things about what repentance is not, because I think this is always important to know what something is and something is not, because I think people get this mixed up in their mind. Uh, in other words, uh, there is a repentance that is not toward God. There are kinds of repentance that have taken, uh, have been mistakenly taken as true biblical repentance, and they are really counterfeits. Actually, there's several counterfeits uh, of repentance, which amount only to the sorrow of the world over one's sin and not being convicted by God that you're under God's judgment for sin and need to turn to Christ for salvation. So, in other words, uh, a scripture that really brings this out uh, is in 2 Corinthians 7.10. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to just mention it. I want you to listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians. It says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. That, that's important there. That when someone truly repents, there is a regret that's removed, right? And it leads to salvation. That's why it's removed. But then it says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So see, people can be and are often very sorrowful and guilty about the things they've done wrong in their life that they can't undo and the implications of sin. All right, they, they really do feel very deep remorse and guilt about it, but that is not repentance, all right? In other words, a repentance of sin produced by a sense of shame is not biblical repentance. Some get caught in their sin, and they are ashamed of it. They are grieved at having been discovered and are sorry now. They are sorry not because of the evil they committed, but that the evil had been dragged into the light and exposed their secret, their evil, their sinning, and their heart. So if they had not been found out, they would probably have continued comfortably in their sin. So don't be fooled that shame over sin is not biblical repentance, although it may include it. Second thing is a repentance that consists of grief because of painful, the painful consequences of sin is also mistaken as biblical repentance. Someone who gives up sin for a time like, I stopped drinking, or I stopped drugging, or I stopped uh, watching pro pornography, or stopped sec sexual immorality, or homosexuality, or cheating, or lying, or stealing, or gossiping, or outburst of anger, and you know, the list goes on. 
See, he or she gives it up not because they dislike it, but because it's ruining them and ruining the people around them. It is a repentance of regret for the adverse consequences of their actions and not sorrow for sin. See, this repentance is also a sham and does, is, is not uh, considered to be true biblical uh, repentance. This kind will never be acceptable in God's sight. It's like in Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats uh, his folly. And so, so that is not, now that may be included though. There may be a grief and a pain over your sin that does lead to a, bib, uh, a re true repentance. And of course, another one would be a repentance that consists of horror at fu the future punishment of sin. In other words, someone's afraid to go to hell, right? So those who, uh, who have escaped possibly the hand of justice in their lifetime, but they know in the depth of their soul that they will not escape the future court of divine justice after death. They stop sinning in a certain area because of the fear of death and judgment and the wrath to come. But their fear goes no further than selfish desire to escape punishment. If they could be assured that no punishment would follow, such persons would no doubt continue in their sin. So fear of punishment falls short of genuine repentance, although it has its benefits, right? To be afraid of hell is a good thing because maybe at that point you're getting that hell is part of God's judgment for sin and it's an eternal place. And I don't know of anybody who wants to go there, you know. And if somebody even uh, just off the cuff says, yeah, I, I don't care if I go there, they don't even understand what they're talking about. Because if you look at what, what is, it, is in Scripture, nobody would want to go there, All right? And then there's another one, a repentance which is partial, that uh, he or she remembers some gross iniquity that they have committed and feel a measure of regret but then sees, for the most part, he or she is a pretty good person. And you know what the thought is here, right? My good's going to outweigh my bad, right? I did some bad things. Everybody's done bad things, but I did some good things too. See, so a person only repents of the glaring offense and has not repented of the sin, their own personal sin at all. So biblical repentance is a repentance that sweeps the house from cellar to attic, it hunts down sin of every shape and size and destroys it. See, no sin is spared when biblical repentance comes in. That's why, again, 2 Corinthians 7.10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But, again... The sorrow of the world produces death. Where does the sorrow of the world lead? You can be sorry for your sin, deeply sorry. As a matter of fact, guilt-ridden sorry, and you can confess 
to people all the time about it, and it will lead to death because you have not come to the one who could actually take care of your sin, Jesus Christ. See, it's void of Christ. That's not biblical repentance. All right. So what is biblical repentance? If the, you're still in the Acts 20 passage, in verse number 21, you'll see soundly testifying to both Jews and Greeks a repentance towards God. That's an, a, you can't say any clearer than that, all right? It is a repentance towards God. Why? Because the essence of your repentance, my repentance, must be toward God for the essence of my sin, the essence of my offense, the essence of my wrong is toward God. When you sin, you sin against God. If when we see that, uh, then we begin to say, all right, I've sinned against God. I thought I was sinning just personally myself because I enjoyed it or I was sinning against another person, but I'm sinning against God. I'm in trouble. That's where biblical repentance brings us, to a place to say, I'm in trouble. See, it's not enough to feel sorry for your sin or even to fear the punishment you will face in hell. Repentance, again, is a heartfelt sorrow for sin and a renouncing of it and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So, biblical repentance includes within that definition, three facts. And what I'd like you to do is, uh, you're there in the book of Acts, turn back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, the first thing, biblical repentance, the first fact about biblical repentance is this. Biblical repentance includes a redirection of your thinking, of a person's thinking. All right, that, that means that all in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 37, right there, you'll notice in that passage of Scripture, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now, see, that question there, that question they asked, what shall we do? is a question of they are rethinking something. They are rethinking something. Of course, he tells them in verse number 38, he said to them, repent. Now, the word repent actually is a word that means, uh, the root word actually means mind. Uh, and the word originally meant an afterthought. And it became literally to mean to change one's mind, uh, or another way to put it, often a second thought which shows that my first thought was wrong. How wrong I was about God. How wrong I was about how to be right with God. How wrong I was about salvation. How wrong I was that there's not many roads into the kingdom of God, but just one. And that's through Jesus Christ. How wrong I was. So see, repentance means that we do ask certain questions. Does, does God make a difference in my life? Does my life in any way conform to the word of God? Have I, li have I been living as if 
I had an endless lease on life and I would never die? Or how am I living? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Why am I living? What's the purpose of my life? What's the end going to be like? See, after asking these questions, you will realize, and I will realize, and I have realized, that I have not thought, and you have not thought of God very much in your life up until the point of God entering in and busting into our little shoeboxes so he can get our attention. So, see, in fact, we find out that I thought all wrong about the one and true and living God in the brief moments I did think about him. I was all wrong about that. In other words, how much I have neglected God in my life, even the common grace that God gives to both the just and the unjust, all right? He allows the rain to fall on the good and the bad. He gives food. He gives life to people. See, God who made us and has given us breath and life and supplied all our needs and allowed us to live life on this earth. And we never, up until that point, served him. We served ourselves. We served our master, our sin. And in that point, we realize we have robbed him of what is his, what is his right. And, of course, uh, we have not given him what, it is, what was his due. So you begin to realize that you also begin to realize how much you misrepresented God. You misrepresented God by your complaining because of your lot in life, thinking God is unjust and even cruel. You think that God is the cause of your misery when you and you alone have brought it upon yourself. You talk about him who is unjust, and all the time it has been you and I who have been unjust and evil. Ingratitude, unthankfulness. If you read your New Testament, you'll find that thankfulness is a top-level ingredient for a real believer. I mean, as soon as you roll out of bed, you know what you should be doing? I thank you, Lord. You gave me breath today. You gave me life today. You know? I thank you because I live before the eyes of God every single day. Ingratitude is the worst of all sins. Matter of fact, some have called it ingratitude, unthankfulness, the exceedingly sinful sin. Because they don't even thank the Creator for what they do have and what God has given them. They immediately begin to complain what they don't have or why somebody has more than them. And then we begin to realize how much we have offended God because, because people have done things that they should not have done and they have left unthing, uh, uh, things undone that they should have done or commands they should have done like this command, like repent, right? And then a person realizes how much they have fallen short of his standard. So see, this is all in the rethinking process. God is causing us by his word to rethink our own position, right? And part of that rethinking is that a truly repentant heart judges, judges, uh, judges itself by God's standard. His standard of perfect, perfect holiness 
is, is, the, is the standard. See, sin is any want of conformity to the law and to the character of God. Like I said last time, if you're saying, if you're thinking, where have I neglected God? If you're thinking, where have I misrepresented God? Where have I offended God? Where have I fallen short of his standard? If you're thinking like that, if a person's thinking like that, then their their thinking is still wrong. Because it's all about them, it's not about God. See, judge yourself by your fellow man, and you don't look so bad. But, in turn, if you judge yourself by the perfect holiness of the Lord, you must begin to despise yourself. You must begin to ask this question they were asking in Acts 2.38, what must I do? Their thinking was changed. They see themselves as God sees them. They see themselves as they really are. So there is no true repentance until our judgment of self is formed by a comparison with the divine character. There cannot be any judgment until you realize you can't say I'm a good person. You may be good compared to the other person, but when you compare yourself to God, you're not good. See, that's the standard. So who, who, who comes close to that standard? No one. Everybody falls short of that standard. So the first fact about biblical repentance is there's going to be a change in one's thinking. Not about just about their sin, but I'm getting to it about who Christ is and about what Christ has done. But there's a second thing, too, in Acts 2.37 a repentance that includes a realization of guilt. If you notice what it says in Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart. What does that mean? They were, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. They were pierced into their heart. A dagger went down to the depth of their soul. And let me remind you that sin is not merely doing something that is wrong. We tend to think like that. We recognize that acts, certain acts are good and others are bad, and we tend to think that sin is just doing particular things that are bad. It is that. But that is not the bottom line in essence to sin. The essence to sin is simply rebellion against God. Any sin that someone would commit is rebellion against God. You see, people tend to think that because they have never committed adultery or never gotten drunk or never have taken drugs or have never committed murder and so on and so forth, that they are not sinners. People conclude that decent and moral and good living people are not sinners because in their estimation, they don't do anything wrong. They try to keep their laws, they pay their taxes, they, they try to do what is right within their framework. But the only reason most people think like that is because they have never understood the essence of sin. See, my repentance has to be toward God and what God thinks about my sin and what God has done about my sin. Nowhere else, see, that is... 
The essence of sin is rebellion against God. And consider this, if a person is not concerned about obeying God, if they're not concerned about pleasing God, if they're not concerned about living to the glory of God, well, then what is that? You know what that is? That is sin. Men and women are in trouble because of their disobedience to God. And as a result, they are under the wrath of God. See, these people here in Acts 2.38 were pierced in their heart. That means the Jews and the Romans were guilty of actually murdering Jesus. They were guilty of murdering, murdering Jesus. And if you and I were there, we would have been there cheering it on. We said, well, I've never murdered Jesus. But if a person has been up to this point in their life unconcerned about Jesus, and that person is someone who could either take or leave it, he may, Jesus may, uh, Jesus maintains no significant position in your life, then that person would be guilty of treating Jesus as insignificant, as an insignificant person. And because they have ignored him in that way and have rejected him, they stand guilty of the same thing of disregarding or discarding the Son of God. There's no greater sin, says Martin Lloyd-Jones, than not to see any need of Jesus Christ. He said, the greatest sinner in the world today are those who do not think about Christ at all. Now, who would consider that a sin? But that's exactly what he's talking about here. If your thinking is going to be redirected and you're going to be pierced in your heart, and you're going to ask the question, what must I do? It's going to be about, it's going to be toward God. In other words, God, what do I do? How do I get out of this place I'm in that where my sin has brought me? That's why repentance, a third fact about repentance is that it's a realization of the relevance of Jesus Christ. When I was down in Algeria preaching and from Acts 17 and, you know, the four imams were supposed to come, and 40 imams came, and we're smack in the middle of the Sahara Desert. They could have knocked me off through, buried Jane and I in the sand, and went on and ate lunch, and nobody would know the difference. And had tried to find somebody buried in the sand in the Sahara de Desert. That's a hard thing to do. Anyway, when I got done preaching from Acts, I uh, kind of challenged them to rethink what the Bible says about Jesus. And then, of course, what happens after is there's an open mic and everybody can come up. And believe me, all of them look like Osama bin Laden. And they all got behind the mic and, and they, they began to say, we don't need to, you know, in Arabic. And then the translator came back, we don't need to rethink anything, you know. And they were going on this militant thing. And I said, I'm looking at Jane. And I look at, we're looking at, well, is there a way out of here? <laughs> and uh, because it was, uh, it was, tense the air was very thick but i knew that that's what i had to tell them they need to think about what who jesus christ really is not from their perspective but from the perspective that the word of god the holy book the word of god which they don't reject 
all right, says about him that they're missing. And I prayed that the Lord would use that. I, it's hard to find out all the way over here. But the bottom line is that um, a young girl, Nedjla, did come to know the Lord as her Savior uh, during that time. And so that was exciting to see that. Of course, her life's in danger because of it. But see, there's got to be a realization of the relevance of Jesus. Maybe that's not the best way to say it. But plainly, repentance is a complete change of heart about Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. You see, the Holy Spirit brings a person to start thinking about Jesus in a way they have never considered him before. He shows them that Jesus came into this world to save sinners and that the world is in a state of sin, and that includes them. See, that has to be part of it. So you see, when the gospel comes by the word of God, the Holy Spirit gets people to think and to look at things in a way they have never done before. Repentance then is agreeing with God that you are sinful, confessing your sin to him and making a conscious choice to turn from sin and pursue Christ in loving obedience. That's why, in, look again in the Acts chapter uh, 20 and verse number 2, uh, 21 passage of Scripture, it says, solemnly testifying, Acts 20, verse 21, solemnly testifying both Jew and Greek repentance towards God, and then, what? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's, that's the main thing, that my turning is toward God, and God shows me how I can be forgiven and rescued from my sin. And how can I do that? Faith in Jesus, not works. I can't offer God anything, but faith. In other words, true faith is always accompanied by repentance from sin. And repentance includes agreeing with God of your condition, confessing your sin to him, especially the sin of unbelief. I was not believing as I ought to believe. I was not believing as the Bible shows I should believe. And making a conscious choice, yes, a choice does come in to turn from sin to pursue Christ because now the Spirit of God is active in awakening me and then convicting me. And now if I stay right there, there may not be any conversion, but it moves you to the place where you call out for Christ in obedience, and Jesus then becomes your master to be followed and your Lord to be obeyed the rest of your life, and that is something that is a good thing. So by the preaching of the Word of God, the Scriptures reveal the status and the dignity and the significance of Jesus Christ. And it is clear that Jesus is the central person and focus of God's program in salvation for men and women from Genesis all the way to Revelation. When the apostles came to preach, they had no New Testament. They preached the gospel from the Old Testament. So Jesus is there in the Old Testament and for us. And so what were they to do? Well, they were to re redirect the person's thinking and heart and affections toward Jesus. Jesus' purpose in coming into this world is summed up nicely in Luke. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save 
that which was lost. And how did he accomplish his mission? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ, God literally became a man and lived the perfect life of righteousness in obedience to his own laws and on behalf of his children. And as it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was the perfect son of man. He was the perfect son of God. And when Jesus died, he endured the wrath of sinners. He endured the anger of God over that sin. He endured the punishment that accompanied and w- that sin and for, and for all sins. And he died as a sacrifice for sins in their place, satisfying the requirements of divine justice and took upon himself the punishment due for sin. So the Bible tells us, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. So Christ, after he died for sinners, what did he do? He rose from the dead bodily. And of course, if a sinner comes to Christ with nothing in their hand to bring, and they believe he died and rose, as it says in the word of God, then, of course, what God does is gives them the gift of eternal life. So one must respond to the Lord in faith, trusting him. And, of course, that must be a personal trust. You can't believe for someone else. You can't believe for your kids. You can't believe for your neighbor. You can't wish somebody into the kingdom of God. You can't even, well, I, I said you could pray somebody into the kingdom of God because you pray they get the gospel so they believe it and, and get saved, right? So believing the gospel means to obey the message concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he is God's only way of salvation, that God sent Jesus on the cross Uh, that God put all our sins on him and punished them in him. So believing the gospel means that you stop all self-justification, every reliance upon your own good deeds and your own efforts are put aside, and you come and trust and depend on Christ completely for your salvation. Now, so, so this was a prime ingredient of a forerunner of someone who preaches the gospel, no matter when they preach. So the offer, uh, the question always has to be, once repentance is preached, have you received the free offer of eternal salvation? Have you obeyed the gospel? Do the two essentials of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are those two essentials yours? Are, are they, have you done that? And if not, no, a person has no part of salvation, no matter how religious they would look or how good a person they may be. And so for Frelinghuysen, it was never enough to believe certain facts about Jesus in the gospel. He believed that conviction of sin was necessary and that a sense of guilt and impending judgment of sin or to be realized and experienced by repentance, faith, and a need for Jesus Christ, the Savior. So he had good theology, 
very good theology. And, um, and he also believed that confession of sin was not enough. There must also be a full purpose of heart to turn from the formal life of sin to a new walk of righteousness. That's biblical repentance, to turn in that way. So this man, this forerunner of the Great Awakening, really wanted to take a, revive a decadent form of Calvinism, which uh, seemed to uh, define religion, at, at least at that time, as observance of certain conventions and, and a moral life. But he still clung to the doctrines of grace, which we all should, because that is biblical theology. That is biblical salvation. Uh, in fact, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to take several messages and preach on the five points of Calvinism, the total depravity, the unconditional election, the limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. I think I want to do that again. I think it's been a long time since I've done that. So what he did is that he wanted to give people the sense of a heart for God by preaching the truth and the doctrines of grace found in the Word of God. Now, what's amazing is that Theodore Frelinghuysen um, actually blessed him with a reformed education. Um, he was converted uh, in his father's congregation at the age of 17, and he attended what they call the Reformed Gymnasium. That's what they used to call universities. Gymnasium, that's a great name for it, isn't it? Because that's, a, you, I mean, your mind's going, doing calisthenics, you know, reading books and writing papers and, you know, you're getting stretched in ways you never were stretched before, all right? And he actually studied for two years philosophy and theology. Uh, he was, in other words, thoroughly reformed in theology and doctrine and re remained faithful to preaching these truths. Frelinghuysen, it is said, his preaching emphasized personal conviction of sin, the emphasis of faith, holiness, true repentance, the necessity of regeneration, the denunciation uh, of formalism, the examination of all before admitting them to church membership. His Raritan congregation was unfamiliar with his forceful preaching, and of course, many of them disliked it and revolted against his preaching. Any preaching that calls people to true biblical repentance and faith in Christ is going to be somehow opposed. Because remember, when God works, Satan works. And Satan wants to keep people blind so they don't see the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't see what they need to do to be saved. But see, in the end, for Frelinghuysen, it bore the fruit of many true converts to Jesus Christ. And many of, as I said last week, many of those converts and their ended up being saved and passing on the gospel to their next generation, and then the Civil War came, and many of those uh, men who died in the Civil War were actually believers. Um, so his forceful and scriptural and sound preaching was in response to the hypocrites uh, he observed among the colonists and his, in his own congregation who had the form of godliness but unacquainted with real godliness. He was basically seeing the evidence of dead orthodoxy resulting with an unconverted ministry. 
And so he went on uh, to, uh, to do the work and through all, worked through all the difficulties. And then Frelinghuysen and his supporters regained the true gospel of Jesus Christ, resulting in a firm foundation for uh, what would be called the Great Awakening. And so Frelinghuysen contended for man's entire depravity, for the necessity of the direct agency of the Holy Spirit, and that the first step in the change proceeds from the sinner, not from the sinner, but from God, and the second is the evidence that is produced in the believer and could be established through examination. In other words, if you say you're a believer, tell me your testimony, right? If you say you're a believer, tell me your testimony. Let me examine you to see your salvation. Let me see your salvation. Tell me about your salvation. What has the Lord uh, done in your life since you've been converted to Christ? Let me see it in your life. Nothing wrong with that. Examination is a good thing, and he believed in that. And so the core issue with uh, the, con- the controversies around his ministry was the nature of true conversion. That was the main issue. Isn't that the main issue today? Well, what is the nature of, of true conversion? How does somebody really get right with God? How does somebody really know when they die they're going to heaven? How do they know that? How do we know that? Well, we don't get up in the morning discovering it. We're going to hear it from God's word, right? We're going to see it from reading it. We're going to hear it being preached. And that's the vital message. And that is the message. That message will never be snuffed out, ever. You can snuff out the servants, but God will raise it up somewhere else, as we've been seeing in church history. And so the final and third thing that the forerunners uh, desired to do was where I started off with John the Baptist. Forerunners desired to turn the hearts of the people toward God. That was their main desire, as it said there in uh, the Gospel loop that I said last week that John the Baptist, what was his mission? To turn the hearts of the fathers back, right? To turn the heart, that is to restore the spirit, restore a spirit ready to receive the Messiah, to restore a spirit ready to receive Christ, to restore a group of people that are revived again, know that they have come to Christ as their Lord and Savior and know where they're going and they tend and go on to live for Christ. That's what they do. And then, of course, ultimately was to bring people to find their comfort and rest in Christ the rest of their life. That's what it should do. Genuine salvation brings us to rest in Christ. That Christ is our comfort. Genuine comfort in Christ comes with the sad realization that no human being can be perfect. But among the consciousness of imperfection, comfort comes from the understanding that the true believers are made perfect in Christ, that's where I get my comfort in. I can never be perfect. You could never be perfect. But in Christ, as my Lord and Savior, I'm perfect. I'll be, I'll be able to come into the presence of God because of Christ's perfect righteousness. That's on my account and your account who believe. So don't assume today that you've repented. Unless it's biblical repentance. 
Don't assume that you always believed in God. No, you didn't. Your thinking was all wrong. It's got to be the Spirit of God that changes your thinking to bring you to the place where you understand true repentance and faith toward God and faith in Christ. That in Christ's sight, a real believer is complete in Christ. And even now, even now, we can say that we're accepted in the beloved, right? Even now, the, the answer is Christ. So the momentum that Freeling Heisen generated theologically placed due pressure on the churches for this reason. We need more people trained like he's trained. There was no schools. There were, there were no places to train ministers. So Freeling Heisen was very much interested in training new ministers and occasionally went to Neshaminy, uh, Pennsylvania, where William Tennant had begun a little school for trained preachers called the Log College. And so he sought to provide adequate training for prospective ministers in this country, instigating the movement which led to the founding of Queens College. You know what Queens College is, right? Rutgers. Rutgers College, of course, believe it or not, Rutgers College was started to train ministers just like Yale, just like Harvard, just like Princeton. Where are they today? Where they're, they're at, where they're at today is because they gave away the gospel and they pushed out the Bible. And all schools are born to die. All theological schools are born somehow they're going to die. You know why? Because Satan gets his unconverted people in there and liberals in there and socialists in there and there it goes, right? So, but if that dies out there, God raises up something here. So it's not going to stop. We have good theological schools in our country and thank the Lord for that. But see, the thing is that, see, the true conversion gives this insatiable desire to believers in the church for truth and to learn more and to never be satisfied where you're at and to know that, listen, it's not just a religion. It's following and living and loving Christ. So my affections are inflamed by the word of God and the spirit of God to want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of silliness going on in the name of Christianity. And in a sense, the church is really decaying inwardly. The great, there's a great reformation needed today, in our day. I think there is somewhat of a reformation going on. But we have the same problem that Friedlinghausen faced there in a colossal disparity between profession and an experience caused by faulty doctrine and, myth and, and mythology or, or methodology. Uh, we have methods to get people saved. That's not how people get saved. So on the surface, all looks pretty good, but shallowness lurks within the churches in need of men and women that will be courageous to make sure the doctrine stays pure, make sure the gospel is being shared, 
men who will get up and become preachers and pastors and evangelists that preach the truth of God's word. So in days gone by, when the church has fallen into a state, into such a state, there were such people that God raised up, and God's going to continue to raise up people. These were discerning men who could call the church to restore her doctrinal vitality and to recover the clarity of the gospel and to ignite a love for God that comes from the Holy Spirit, especially Holy Spirit gospel preaching and uh, a daily practice of holiness and godliness. It was Charles Spurgeon, I love what he said about, he said this about the Great Awakening. He said, uh, the the Great Awakening and all true and spiritual revival, he says, there is no church, however good it is, which might not be better. And there are many churches sunken so low that they have abundant need if they would prevent spiritual death to cry aloud, Lord, revive us. That should be our cry. That should be our prayer. May that be our cry and prayer today that we would be kept alive and serving God with a fervent spirit. You know, in Romans 12, where it says, talks about the gifts, and then it says, it talks about serving God with a fervent spirit. What kind of, you know, you know what the word fervent meant? I looked it up. It means, it means to be a flame. He says that's how we serve God. We are to serve God with a, a fervent spirit, a spirit on fire. Don't you want to live like that? Don't you want to serve God like that? Yes? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the history that actually we have been part of because we live in this same part of New Jersey. Thank you, Lord, that at that time you raised up people and you are still raising people up, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for faithful Christians, faithful pastors, faithful theologians, faithful uh, people who write good books filled with the Word of God, filled with uh, challenging uh, people in their sin, helping them out of their sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all those things. But mostly, Lord, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, that you have protected it, preserved it, and given it to us today. And I pray, Lord, that even this morning, if there's someone who has not turned to God for salvation and had faith in Christ, today would be the day For the first time, maybe, they call upon you, Lord Jesus Christ, as their Savior, and that you would grant them salvation. Thank you, Lord. Anybody who comes unto you, you'll you'll know why it's cast out. And so I pray, Lord, that this whole understanding of repentance would be clear now, that you would change their mind, Lord, and that you would point them in direction where they can truly be saved. And, Lord, for us who know you as as our Lord and Savior, Lord, please... Continue to keep our heart aflame so we would serve you diligently every day of our life and that we would be praying, Lord, when we feel that we're getting cold, when we're feeling that we're drifting away, Lord, revive us. 
Make us alive so we can serve you in a very meaningful and consistent way. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.